I feel like Elvis. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'll be here all week. That was fun. I'm Scott Weatherford. Welcome to First Baptist. I know Scott Tidwell already greeted you. Thank you, Jonathan, for the opportunity to sing and, and be a part of that. And our God is great, is he not? In spite of the nonsense that's going around in the world, our God is great. He is in control. He is loving and he's moving. And today I'm going to get to talk about a subject that I feel like a failure in, and that's parenting. And the thing is that I try to tie my spiritual vitality to the behavior of my grown children. And you know what that's called? Stupid. Because you just can't. But we all have dreams for our kids. We see them as the valedictorian or the one who, you know, scores the winning run or catches the big waves or becomes valedictorian or the queen of the prom or marrying Prince Harry in a royal menage of nonsense that happened this week. But I did want a piece of that wedding cake, the lemon cake with the elderberry flower, whatever. I don't know what that is, but it sounded like it was good. And I don't think I'm going to have any for lunch. But we all have these great kids. We don't see our children being tricked by culture, broken on the world. We don't see that. But the truth is our culture will drag our kids down and beat them up and leave them broken. Why do we know that? Because it's done it to us. And there's not a one of us in here that has escaped the brokenness of the world. You see, I say this a lot, and I don't know if you guys have really caught on to it. We're the fellowship of the broken. We're not the gathering of the perfected. At any time a church thinks it's the gathering of the perfected, they're first of all delusional and second of all demonic. Because that's not the way God works. God works through broken people like you and me. Aren't you glad? I heard a preacher say once, God can heat a straight lick with a crooked stick. And we're all a bunch of crooked sticks, right? Look at your neighbor right now and say, you're crooked. Doesn't that feel good? Some of y'all like that too much. But we all have these visions. Now, what we have going against us is that we're not fighting against flesh and blood. And our culture will trick us. Now, here's some things I want to encourage you with, and hopefully they will not discourage you. But I want to look at our, cultural, our current cultural influences, both good and bad, and how they're affecting our kids and how that literally is affecting us as we live together all for Jesus. So what I, what I want to say about this is let's learn to eat the fish and not the bones. Now, those of you who went to Israel with me, you remember that one meal we had St. Peter's fish, which was fried tilapia with the head still on it and the eyes still looking at it at you. So you had to pick through the bones to get to the minuscule amount of flesh. And that is the way with our culture. We have to learn to eat the fish and not the bones. So, Colin, you're with me on that, right? Colin, did you eat the fish that day? Yeah, I did. I chose not to because I'd done that before. That's what experience will do for you. But let's look at this. So here's the first thing I want you to consider. Music shapes our culture probably more than anything else. Now, let me give you this. This is extra stuff. Uh, I want you to write this down. Go ahead and take the Take It With You weekend notes out and take it down. I want to give you five marks of culture. Five marks of culture. And when I train pastors, this is something I train them in, to be students of the culture. You don't transcend culture without being aware of culture. And there's five marks of culture. First of all is music. The style of music, the preference of music. What do most people listen to in Texas? Country. Country, Western, art, pop. In fact, if we picked up one of the playlists from any of our teenagers, you'd probably find it'd be very eclectic. There would be a lots of different kinds of music because their musical preferences become very eclectic and not just shallow. Like in my day, you know, we would listen to Jackson Brown or we'd listen to anybody Jackson Brown fan? 
Yeah, I got one. I got an amen. That's right. Are willing, uh, we, we listen to Willie. If you're Texan, you have to listen to Willie, right? That's right. Our heroes have always been cowboys. All right. And are we listening to Eagles? The Eagles? Yeah, some of y'all don't know who that is. All these old people are going, yeah, these kids are going, huh? And so, but it's very eclectic and music determines style. Now, many times churches get caught in the style of music of its most influential cultural stage. Something to consider. The second mark of culture is food. Food. When you think of Texas, what do you think of? Barbecue or Mexican food. Yeah. Now, if you take barbecue and marry it with Mexican food, you got magic, right? So our friend Kelly Evers at Creekside Cookers makes a brisket taco. Jesus is serving those in heaven right now. All right? That's right. So God bless Kelly and God bless brisket tacos. So Food. The third mark of culture is dress. In Texas, we prefer the casual and informal over the formal, right? Last week, I wore a suit. The next time you'll see me in a suit, it was when somebody's dead, somebody's getting married, or it's Mother's Day yet again, all right? Unless Tara tells me to wear a suit, then I'll be in a suit. If you see me in a suit, it's under orders, okay? Not preference. Fishing shirts are the, of the style preference of me are these little shirts with pink flowers on it today. Anyway. Don't judge me. Okay. The fourth mark of culture, you guys are supposed to laugh at all this stuff. The fourth mark of culture is language. Our idiomatic phrases, our idioms, our colloquialisms, things we say that Marcus is Texas. Now in Canada, I would use colloquialisms that I learned in the South, and they just did not understand them at all. I would say things like this. Y'all, now they didn't know what that was. Y'all, now that's, a, that's a greeting, a proper greeting. Y'all, in fact, people in Calgary understood people who went to First Alliance Church because they would use all, y'all. They'd say y'all, so I'd influence the culture that way. But I'd say, y'all, I'm as nervous as a long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs. And some of y'all missed that right there. You sure you're Texan? Okay, long-tailed cat, rocking chairs, tail under the chair. Meow, that's a perfect illustration. Uh, you act like the cat's got your tongue. Yes, focus, Fox. Thank you, Scott. The fourth mark of culture, or the fifth mark of culture, is traditions, the traditions you have. Now, we have traditions. College football is a tradition in Texas. It's not high school football is a tradition in Texas. Uh, any kind in, in Wimberley, uh, market days, that's a tradition, right? Buying stuff somebody made that you don't want, but you think it's cool, market days. <clears throat> Bless God for market days, all right? Uh, any high school sports, I'm amazed at, at people who go to high school sports here where I grew up, that didn't happen. I, I've gone out to several sporting events, you know, football, softball, baseball, watch kids play. It's kind of cool, basketball. It's, it's all part of our culture. We have traditions. Now, if you're an Aggie, if you do it once, it's a tradition, right? A dog wanders up on campus, all of a sudden you have a dog. I could go on. Sorry, Aggies, y'all are looking at me pitifully, but it's true. Tech, University of Texas, I don't know what their traditions are. It doesn't matter. They say we are the tradition, but that's a whole nother conversation. So that's the five marks of culture. Music is very influential to your kids and what they listen to and how it influences them. I said this in the early service. I said, God loves all kinds of music. And then someone comes up to me and they said, pastor, does, Scott, does God love Motley Crue? <laughs> they had me. I said, he loves Motley Crue. He may not enjoy their music, but he loves them. 
because there's no such thing as Christian music. There's only Christian words. And Motley Crue definitely does not have Christian words. Not that I've ever listened to Motley Crue. Dan told me that Motley Crue didn't have Christian words. <laughs> the second thing is, is the media, including social media. Primetime media. We're loaded out with images of murder and mayhem. Uh, Hollywood, or what I like to call Holly weird. They're out of touch and, 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 and without a clue, and they're out of control. And I really don't care that Kim Kardashian has lost five pounds on her latest cleanse. I am not keeping up with the Kardashians, nor do I dare to even want to, even as it entered my mind. Some of y'all are going, who are the Kardashians? Good for you. Good for you. And, and it's not like uh, we are, we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, we're on WhatsApp, we're, uh, we're, we're up, we're on everything. And I only wish that we are actually living the lives we portray we're living on Facebook, our Instagram, our Twitter, but we're not. It's fake. And we're living fake lives. And even children are crying about how fake it is. It's awesome. <laughs> so it's, it's all about keeping up appearances. I remember when Facebook came out, my son, who was in college at the time, he said, hey, Dad, there's this kind of new thing called Facebook, and only college kids are on it. And then I got on it, and he wouldn't friend me. <laughs> in fact, I'm, I'm a public figure. I don't have any friends. I'm just a public figure on Facebook. You know why? Because I kept getting hacked and people kept asking money in my name. So I just wanted to be a public figure. So if you got stuff on Facebook, I don't see it. I don't want to see it. Not that I'm judging you. I just don't want to see it. And if you go to my page, you'll just see sermons and stuff like that. That's it. It's boring. And so we have to fight the urge of self-promotion. And then, of course, uh, there's the lack of absolute truth. The book of Judges says that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Welcome to our society. We want to do what we want to do, and we want to do it. And you can't tell me what to believe or how to believe it because I am the determination of that. And the lack of absolute truth is really rooted in the sin that I want to be God. It is. And there is absolute truths. And they shape us and they form us. But when we reject those, we have our culture. And then we live in what we call a secular society or a sacred society. And I want to tell you, both of those things are made up. There's no such thing as secular or sacred. What? No, there's not. It's manufactured. Actually, those words originated in the Middle Ages to justify people living segregated lives so they could panhandle off people who actually worked. God owns it all. All of life is sacred. All of it. Well, you say, well, I have my work life, and then I have my home life, and I have my social life, and I have my whatever life. And you divide your life into those categories. It's called schizophrenia, y'all. You have one life, and you're all living under the presence and under the influence of God. All of life is sacred. Your whole life is sacred. I don't have a sacred job. I'm a sacred person because of Christ in me, and so are you. I don't have a secular pursuit because there's no secular in me because I belong to Jesus, so everything's sacred. Whether I'm baking a cake or preaching a sermon or singing a song, it's all for Jesus. And that transcends that segregation of compartmentalization that I could justify myself by my behavior saying this is sacred and this is secular. And it's all one thing. I hmm. find it very interesting, this passage of scripture we're gonna be dealing with out of, 
out of Ephesians. Last week, we talked about the family and marriage. And this week, we're talking about parenting and work ethic, and we're talking about those things. That right after Paul wrote about these things, he writes about spiritual warfare. Listen to what he says. For we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in dark places, as against evil spirits in the heavenly in the heavenly uh, heavenly places or heavenly realms. I realize this that Paul was saying this that we're in a spiritual battle, y'all. Now I could take some time, and maybe I will in the future, talking about how demons are organized and how they're territorial and how they're systematic and. But I don't want to talk about that today. I want to talk about being an overcomer in Christ. Paul talked about spiritual warfare because our culture is a part of that warfare. And God wants you to be an influencer. He wants you to be an overcomer. He doesn't want you to be overcome. And there's hope for us and there's hope for the church. So let's listen to what God says about parenting. But more importantly, let's listen to what God says about life. And standing against the pull of culture and being light in the world, being intelligent light in the world. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for what you want to say to us this morning. And I pray, Father, that uh, we will not be overwhelmed by the things of our world, but God, we will embrace you and let you be the one who transforms us. Help me, O oh God, to have clear thoughts and clear words that bring life to your people. Not my words, but yours. My words are nonsense and noise. Your words are life and peace. Thank you for what you want to do. And I pray this all in your strong name. Amen. You'll also notice that in the Take the Weekend With You notes, we have scripture passages that go along with this message. Things that you can read every day this week that'll encourage you, nurture you. Now, listen to me very carefully. You need three experiences every week if you want a life built by God. You need this experience as a group where we hear teaching and we embrace teaching. The second experience you need, you need a group. You need to be engaged in a group, whether it's an on-campus group on Sunday mornings or an on-campus group that meets any other time during the week or an off-campus group that meets in a home or a restaurant. You need to be connected. Or whether it's three or four of you that just gather together intentionally to encourage, you need a group. And the last environment you need is you need your personal time with Jesus. I can't do this for you. You have to learn to do it for yourself. Learn to do it for yourself. I remember when our kids were little, they would open up the refrigerator and be full of food and they would say, there ain't nothing to eat in this house. And aren't we the same way with scripture? When God has given us a bounty, but we're too lazy to get it for ourselves. So we create these environments intentionally for you to help you grow to be like Jesus because we exist to build lives that honor God and that means your life. That means your life. So let's look at this. Now, today we're gonna look at three different passages and we're going to focus on one in particular, but we're going to look at three. These three passages, one in Ephesians chapter 6, one in the book of Proverbs, and then in Colossians chapter 3. And we're going to spend a little more time on Colossians than the other two. But let me read for you out of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the commandment with a promise that comes right out of the Ten Commandments that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, when but Paul said fathers, actually the Greek there is inclusive. It should say parents, moms and dads, instead of just fathers, but parents. Now, 
in this society, fathers were basically absent and mamas raised the kids. But what God is saying to us is that God gave us two parents on purpose, that dads become influential. Guys, I wanna encourage you with this, okay? Your children are 70% likely to take on your faith, 30% likely to take on their mama's faith. You're tremendously influential. Thursday night, we had a gathering of, of guys. We had got a minute first, and we talked about the power of a father's blessing. And it was brutal. A lot of guys dealt with a lot of stuff, and, and God was really working in the hearts of our guys. Because so many of us have missed the blessing of our father. But I want to say this to you. You have a father God who wants to give you the blessing. And there's so many guys that I've heard said, my father didn't do this, but I'm doing this for my kids. And they've broken the, the curse. They've shaken off the yoke of their bondage. And they're living in such a way. And even if you're a dad who hasn't done what was right, it's not how you start, it's how you finish that matters. And I've heard stories of redemption that are incredible. And I would bless with, with a great dad. And he blessed us. And he, even though he lives with Jesus, he still blesses. And so that's the kind of father we should be. Now, interesting enough, it said, fathers don't, do not provoke your children to anger. In the King James, it says this, fathers don't exasperate your children. What does that mean? Fathers don't call your, call, cause your kids to gag. That was a pretty sound, wasn't it? Don't cause your kids to gag. In other words, your inauthenticity will call them to go, I'll never do that again until the next time I do it, okay? And then literally, I am responsible. Now, as I look at this, here's the whole situation of this. This passage is how we parent. It's talking about environments we create and, and how, we, how we create those environments in our home. The second passage is from Proverbs, and it's loaded with instruction. Now, listen to what this passage says. Teach your children to choose the right path, and when they're older, they will remain upon it. And that's Proverbs 22, 6. Now, some of you have heard this passage this way. Raise up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. Some of you have heard that, right? Now, this passage, like the other passage, is this is how we direct and guide our children. This is how we give them the example. It, the, both of these passages it say these things. Now, listen. It says, in your home, as a parent, you create security, you create honor, and you give instruction, and instruction to love the Lord. That's what you do. And looking back at that, you know, I'm thinking, I wasn't as bad as I think I was. And I'm going to go on to say more about that. This proverb is loaded with what I call the bending of your child. Now, let me talk about this proverb, what it really means in the Hebrew language, which is very interesting. Raise up a child the way he should go. Literally, is translated, raise up a child according to his bent. And what God is saying to us is that every one of your children have a distinct shaping by God himself. And the word for bent is a word used for bending a bow. And bows were bent for different uses. Some bows were bent for long shots. Some bows were bent for short shots. Some bows were bent to shoot fire. Some bows were bent to shoot scattering arrows. So there's different bows or different bents. In Psalm 127, it talks about, you know, unless the Lord builds a house, the, builder, the work of the builders is vain. Uh, children are a blessing for the Lord like arrows in the hand of a mighty warrior. Blessed he whose quiver is full. 
And what God is saying here is that your kids are arrows you will shoot to generations you will not know. So let them figure out how God's bent them or shaped them. They have distinct personalities. I cannot treat Caleb like I treat Kayla. I love them the same. They're very different. I have to be a student of them to understand how they're bent. Gosh, I found that out in leadership. I can't treat Dan the same way I treat Scott Tidwell. They're very different. I can't treat Dan or Scott Tidwell the way I treat Wyatt. Very different. Some of y'all notice Wyatt's been missing. Wyatt's been with his dad. His dad is 90. He lives in West Texas. He's been in bad health. And I said to Wyatt, we'll be fine. You go be with your daddy. And so he's been with his dad for the last two weeks. His dad's better. He's coming home today. We missed Wyatt, but Wyatt was where he was supposed to be. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. So that's the freedom we have because we're a family on our staff team. We look out after each other. But I need to understand how we're bent and we need to understand our kids are bent. My dad was the master of this. He understood, he had four of us, David, Judy, Stan, and me. I was the smartest, the most talented, but you know. Well, I was the last one. They got it perfect. They quit, right? Yeah, that's the way it works. My dad said I was an accident. My mother said I was a love child. Both ways are disturbing. I don't want to hear about it. But he understood that we were all different. We had different persuasions and different attitudes and different way we dealt with things. And that's what it's saying here to, to understand bending over your child. God has a destiny for your child. Your intentionality is to show them how to live all for Jesus. Are you doing that? And even when you do the best you can, they belong to Jesus. They don't belong to you. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Now, God promises that he'll walk with your kids. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your path. Or he'll make your path obvious. Or as I like to say around here, he'll make your path well lit and downhill. That's the way God works. Now, let's take a deeper look now at Colossians chapter 3, because this is where I want to encourage you. The cultural drift that affects us all, your kids and all of us, well, it's real. It's old as man. So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you, Paul says. Have nothing to do with sexual sin, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Why did he say those things? Because they were living in a Greek world. And this was normative. They, they were just cuckoo for cocoa puffs and gross people. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater. Worshiping the things of this world. Why would he say that? Because God wants you to be generous. Listen to me. Why do we kind of encourage you to give? Well, because Jesus needs some cash. No. Your heart needs to be generous because God is generous. Jesus doesn't need cash. What he wants is your heart. And I'll say this to you. We'll never be after your money around here, ever. But we'll be after your heart. Guarantee it. You want to know something else? I don't have a clue what any of y'all give. I don't. I don't want to know. That's between you and God, because I'm going to treat you the same. I'm going to love you and aggravate you equally, all right? So this is all about generosity, because a, a, a greedy person worships their stuff. A generous person would worship their God. Now, this drift started the book of Genesis. Listen to this passage. So Cain left the Lord's presence and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now, that may sound like an innocuous passage, like, okay, they're just saying where Cain lived. Who is Cain? Cain 
was the brother of Abel, who were the sons of Adam and Eve, and Cain was the first murderer in the Bible because he murdered Abel out of jealousy. And Cain made an intentional decision to move away from God. And you can make that same decision. But if you've given your heart to Christ, you may run from God, but you will never run out from under his cover. You live under the canopy. But if you don't belong to God, you're in trouble because you don't live under the canopy. And the good news is, is today you can move. Cain moved away from God. Moving in the presence out from the presence of God is very dangerous. You know, times change, but people don't. And many of us are still like Cain. Many people, especially here in Texas, especially here in Wimberley, they've been exposed to Christianity, but they don't know Jesus. They know churchianity, but they miss Christ. They can quote scripture, but scripture has not impacted their lives because they don't have a relationship with Christ. The interesting thing about Christ is that he is the God of culture. Jesus didn't stay in heaven and criticize. He came to earth and enculturated himself that we might see how to live. The writer of Hebrews said it this way. We have a high priest, Jesus, who suffered the same temptations we do. Think about this, teenagers. Jesus has gone through the same garbage you've gone through in high school. What? Yeah, but without sin. Really? Yeah. Times change, people don't. Same kind of temptations, same kind of lures. He didn't have a Facebook page or Instagram or whatever. But he was influenced by the culture in a very perverted Greco-Roman culture. Jesus lived, but yet without sin. Why did he do that? To show us how to live. Marked with love and grace. John said it this way, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Peter said it this way, and we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. Eyewitnesses to his majesty. Not talking about the royal being of the king, but the majesty of his life on display. God in flesh. The great mystery of God. And I want to say this to you because I want you to, to get this. That God got you. You didn't just get God. And you got to know him. And there's a difference between knowing God and knowing about God. The Greek word that best really identifies us what know God means is a word called gnosos. And the word literally means a deep intertwining of heart and spirit and of life. That's what it means. When the scholars translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek, it's called the Greek Septuagint. When they were translating the book of Genesis, they said, and Adam knew his wife. And they translated that word and they begat you know, their, their children. They, they, in other words, they were talking about sexual intimacy. They used the word gnosos. And later in the New Testament, you see that same, that you might know him, gnosos. That God wants you to have an intimate understanding of him, an intertwining of your heart and soul. 
When I first met Tara, I knew about her. I'm married to her now. Now I gnosos. I know her. She knows me. It's that intimate intertwining that goes beyond physical, but goes into spiritual. You can know about God, but God wants you to gnosos, to know him. Not just intellectual understanding or scripture memorization or the purity of doctrine, but to know him. The other day I was having a conversation with some folks about doctrine and I came home and I told Tara that we were talking about doctrine. Then I said to her this, we were driving to San Marcos, you know, and I was preaching and she was sleeping, but I was talking to her and I said, Tara, I think this about doctrine, any doctrinal position that doesn't make us more loving, I don't think is of God. If I have a doctrine that doesn't make me love God more and love people more, I don't know if it's of God. Because God is, is love. I know so many people who have a solid doctrinal position, but they're as mean as a two-headed snake. What's up with that? They will know we are Christians by what? Well, you can say it out loud. You don't know it. By our love. Not by our purity of doctrine, even though we should have purity of doctrine. Are, are y'all with me? Y'all get that? And so how God wants us to know him that we might love like him and be loved by him. And it changes us. We have that knowledge and it changes how I parent when I have that knowledge. And when I understand my culture and I understand God's love for me, then God can use me to be a person of rescue. I could be one beggar telling other beggars where I found bread. I grew up on the Gulf Coast of Florida. The Panhandle of Florida is a beautiful place. Actually, I should say I grew up in L.A., Lower Alabama. Because in the summertime, every redneck in Alabama would come to the beach. It's called the Redneck Riviera. I mean, do we just get inundated? My little town would go from 30,000 to 300,000 people during the summer. And the traffic is crazy. It's a crazy place. And, and that's, that's where I, I grew up, on the beach in Florida. And I, I surf. That's one of the things I, I love to do. And, but I would spend a lot of my summer when the waves were big, pulling Alabama rednecks out of the rip currents. Because they just didn't know. They go, hey, Bubba, surf big. Hold my beer. Let's watch this. And they'd go out and drown themselves. And I'd paddle out there and tell them, hold on to the nose of my board, and I'd paddle them in because they didn't understand about rip currents. Why did I understand about rip currents? Because I grew up there. I knew the current. Shouldn't I be the person of rescue because I understand the culture of today? Instead of being judgmental, shouldn't I be paddling people out of the surf to save their life? Over and over and over. Now, I said this in the last night. I didn't say it in the second, first service because Tara was in here. But I met a lot of cute girls like that too. You know, it's not bad. <laughs> But I, only, I met the one I needed, and that was Miss Tara. Not, I didn't pull her out of the surf. I pulled her out of a life of reckless abandonment to live with me, Pastor Scott. <laughs> God help us. That's right. Okay. Now, as a parent or as a person, I have to remember this, that God has chosen me to be holy. Now, some of you are reading my book, Sifted Leadership, and you know there's a chapter in there called, Are You a Holy Man?, talks about a crazy experience I had in India. 
And if you haven't read the book, you can read it. I think we might have some copies around we could give to you. Or you can go on Amazon and buy it. The proceeds go to my favorite charity, which is my wife. Okay. Anyway, listen to this. Since God has chosen you to be holy, people he loves, you must clothe yourself with, get this, tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Tenderhearted mercy means mercy that has no limit. That's what it means. Make allowance for each other's faults. Isn't that good news? And forgive anyone who offends you. Wow, maybe you should pre-forgive them. Pre-forgive them. Remember, the Lord forgave you and you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourself with love, which binds it all together in perfect harmony. Clothe yourself with love. Why? Because God is love and he wants us to look like him. That's Colossians 3, 12 through 14. Now, this is not a philosophy. It's not a religion. It's not some type of spirituality, but a relationship with the living, loving God that changes us. This is a life of obedience that leads to a life of love that leads to behaviors that are loving. Okay? My belief will lead to my behaviors and my behaviors will express my belief. It's not the other way around. Now, I want to read this to you because I want to make sure you get it. Because so many of us struggle in this area. According to the number of names I put into the Jerusalem Wailing Wall, many of you struggle with wayward children. I put over 200 names of kids in the Wailing Wall that we might pray for. And while I was there, Amber kept sending me emails with more names. Finally, I said to her, should I put the whole dead gum, you know, Wimberley phone book in the Wailing Wall? Probably would have worked to put Austin in there and Houston and San Antonio, the whole works. But we keep, we keep loving. Now, here's what I want to read. Your kids belong to God. Remember that. You cannot get your self-worth from your children or judge your relationship with God based on their behavior. They are responsible to God. Your job was to influence them, not to control them. And now that they're adults, so many of you that are adults, your job is to influence them, not to control them. They belong to Jesus. To quote, quote the great theological movie, Frozen, let it go. But don't let go of them. I also wrote this, and I want to read it to you. We keep loving our children after they're grown. We keep praying for them. We keep hoping God will work in their life. So many of you have felt worthless and guilty, and Satan has beat you up because of your children's behavior. That junk is from hell. Stop believing it. God loves you, and he loves your wayward kids. And he will never give up on them. And he'll never give up on you. So you act like God and you never give up on them. And I hope that helps. Why? Because God has a plan for you. He has a plan for your kids. Let the message about Christ and all its richness. I love that. All its richness fill your life. Do you think about Christ's message being rich? Um, we moved to Wimberley, and so we're embracing Wimberley culture. We have bathed in the Blanco. We've, we feasted in the dining spots around Wimberley, all four of them. We've, we've eaten at them. 
But I took Tara on Friday. I took her to a culinary experience she had yet to experience. And we went to see Brother Neil at Wimberley Pie. And I said, baby, brace yourself for the richness of this culinary genius. And we walked in and he had a, he had a, a smorgasbord of delectable delight spread out before us. Pie, custard, and, and coconut, and and lemon, and I, see, I'm just getting confused, lost in all the richness of it, and all the richness. And Tara gave me permission to get a coconut custard pie, and I ate all I could, and I rubbed the rest on my leg. It was so good. <laughs> God's riches for you. He gives this to you. It's the bounty of his message that God is for you and that he loves you and you can't out him. You can't outrun him. And there's no one God can't forgive and no person God can't make right. It doesn't matter what you've done or where you've gone or what you've become. God loves you and he could change you. So let his, his word dwell richly in you and share this life of richness and community with each other. You know, a Christian without a church family is a spiritual orphan. And a Christian without a group that's continually meeting together is a Christian that's probably going to get in trouble. And you need time with God together in this corporate gathering, a group time. You need a personal time. You need a pod. You need a posse. You need people to hang out with you and hang out with God. You need that together. And let praise connect our hearts. Why do we sing? To connect our hearts. To connect our hearts. God loves it when we sing. And so we use the arts around here to touch the heart. And we're crazy. We're crazy. We have three different kinds of gatherings with three different kinds of music because we believe we want to use music as a tool to reach people. Saturday night's different from Sunday mornings and 9.15 is different from 11. And God loves all of them. This thing up here called the drum set is not the tool of the devil. It's not. I've heard teachers say, he's playing the devil's tool. No. See, God's agreeing. It's thundering right now. <laughs> it's not. You know that piano's a percussion instrument too. Our beloved Dan is a percussionist. It's raining. I can preach as long as I want to. All right, that's great. Okay. <laughs> Be accountable in love, not in judgment. Now I want to say this to you because I, I missed this and I want to go back and say that. Okay. So many of you, uh, you don't have kids at home anymore. So lean into people who do. One of the worst things we did in church life was to age grade people. And we categorized them. Now I understand in developmental age with like children and students, they need to be together. But you adults, we need to have a smorgasbord of intergenerational connectivity. Why? Because the Bible says to do that. Back in the 50s, our denomination decided we were going to age great people. And I think it's a mistake because the Bible says we're to be intergenerational. So I want to ask you this. Should we get our direction from a publishing company or from God's word? That's right, God's word. Older people mixed with younger people. Younger people mixed with older people. You need that relationship. We need to give that away to one another because it makes our life rich. Y'all need some old folks in your life. And we need some young folks in our life as well. Mm. I think that'll change who we are. Now, 
It quit raining, so I'm going to finish. So final thoughts. There's only 12 of them, so hang with me, okay? First of all, take a look at your life and adjust your life to God. God will not adjust himself to you, but you have to adjust to him. Pray and ask God for wisdom. The Bible says if you ask God for wisdom, he'll give it to you without judging your motives. Ask him. Forgive yourself. Well, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. Who do you think you are? You think you're God? If God forgave you, don't you think you'd suck it up, buttercup, forgive yourself? Quit wallowing in self-pity. It stinks. And say, okay, all right, I got it. Maybe you need to forgive your kids. Maybe your kids need to forgive you. Protect, don't withdraw. Lead into relationships. The church is not supposed to be segregated from culture, but supposed to influence the culture by being salt and light. Understand the times and the culture we're in. Be a student. Pay attention. Talk to your children. Have dinner together. Do family small group together. When our kids were teenagers, once a week, we got on our big kid's side bed and we had family time together. We prayed and we talked to one another. We prayed for one another. It wasn't perfect, but man, we tried it. Be available to your kids at their pace, not yours. I've told my kids all their life, I'll take their call no matter where I am, no matter who I'm talking to. I'll take their call. Same thing with Tara. They have total access. Remember the pressure you felt when you were a kid and multiply it by 20. In fact, I thought about that and I said you could multiply it by the number of decades you've been alive. So me, I multiply it by 20. I don't know what you're going to multiply yours by. And don't let your relationship with God be determined by the behavior of your kids. They belong to Jesus. And pray for your kids. I'll pray for your kids. You pray for mine. Because we live together all for Jesus. And here's the last thing. And I'm done. You can't live life without Jesus. Can't. Now you can't have an existence without Jesus. But Jesus says the thief has come to kill, steal, and destroy. But I've come that you might have life and have life abundantly. So there's two things I want to say to you. If you've never trusted Jesus, today's your day. Give your life to Christ. The second thing I want to say to you, if you've trusted Jesus, remember to whom you belong and live all for Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the, just the pointed way your word speaks to our deepest need. And thank you that you will never give up on us, that you love us with that love that won't let us go. And I pray, oh God, that we will do business with you in commitment and restoration and forgiveness and embracing the love from you. Father, there's folks that need to make decisions today. Some in this room need to give their lives to you. Whether they're a teenager or a young adult or an older adult, they've maybe known about you, but they don't know you. And today's the day they give their life to you. If this is you and you know it, you feel the spirit of God moving in your heart, I want to invite you to pray with me this very simple prayer. 
Just pray it believing. Pray it silently. This is between you and God. Just pray this with me. Pray, Lord Jesus, I'm yours. I give my life to you. Thank you for dying for me. I pray you come into my heart and be my savior. And I'm going to live for you all my life. Jesus, I'm yours. If you just prayed that prayer with me, welcome to God's family. There's some of you in this room. Well, you belong to Jesus and you need to remind yourself you belong to Jesus. Why don't you pray this, what I'm going to pray. Hey, Jesus, I remember I'm yours. Thank you for saving me. And I'm going to live for you. Father, I want to lift up the kids, the wayward kids, the kids running from you, that all these parents have prayed for and I've prayed for. You know them by name. You know their situation. And oh God, I pray that you be the deliverer. You be the redeemer. You be the restorer. You'll break the grip of addiction. Break the grip of cultural influence. And you'll bring them to know you. Father, I thank you that you are good and you're relentless. You're never giving up on us. That you're the one who's got us and we didn't get you. You came and got us. So Father, I pray now we'll live for you. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for putting us into a family. We pray this in your strong name. Amen. Jonathan's going to lead us in a song of commitment. So I want to invite you to pray and to sing and to give your life to Christ. Around this room will be our prayer team. They'll be scattered around. If you need prayer for your kids, you prayer for yourself, our prayer team who've been trained and been meeting together and praying, they'd love to pray with you. They're going to hold things confidential. There's ladies. So ladies, you want to go to a lady, you can pray with a lady. Our pastors will be here. We'd love to pray with you because we love you. Did you know that I love you? And I thank God for you. So let's stand together and let's sing to the Lord as a time of commitment.